That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Have you ever heard about a promising new medical treatment and wondered about the patients who tried it first? From Offscript Health, welcome to Before We Die, the podcast where you'll meet the medtech innovators who will share the hurdles, successes, and heartbreaking failures in getting their products to patients before we die. I'm Joey Brenneman from Offscript Health. Now, this is not a podcast about death and dying, quite the opposite. It is about the amazing technological advances in the medical industry that could potentially save lives. And today's focus is the Hawthorne Effect. Not the theory, but the company. The Hawthorne Effect Incorporated has figured out a way to bring clinical trials directly to patients, regardless of where they live or the complexity of the trial. And our guest today is the CEO of the Hawthorne Effect, Jody Aiken. But first, let's say hello to our resident panel of experts and the Before We Die creators, Sandra Miller. Hello, Joey. Hey, John McMahon. Hi, Joey. Hey, John. And Craig Allman. Hi, Joey. All right. So today we are talking about the Hawthorne Effect Incorporated, a company that has innovated clinical trials. And as we all know, clinical trials have affected everything from cancer to birth control and, of course, COVID. So, John, what's your perspective on clinical trials and their importance? Clinical trials really define the backbone of how the state of healthcare we have and how we change it how we find the evidence that shows that one therapy is better than another, and sometimes which patients that it is specifically better for. We, we always get excited about product innovation, and I'm, I'm certainly one of those people who do that, as opposed to process innovation. But in fact, to get product innovation, you need to do a clinical trial. You need to prove that your product is better than the current standard of care. And that's A, really elaborate, and B, really expensive, and C, very time-consuming. And if someone could innovate that, which our guest today has, that has implications for everyone doing everything and could have a profound effect on getting solutions to people before we die. So it's a liberating innovation for all of us. Yeah, very true. And Sandy, you brought Jody Aiken to us. So can you tell us a little bit more about her background? So Jody's career has really been focused at the epicenter of clinical trials for primarily medical devices. That's been her focus. And she's done that in both smaller companies, in academic medical research institutions such as Stanford, as well as for large medical device companies such as Edwards Life Sciences. So she was definitely qualified to start this new company, The Hawthorne Effect. So I just think that we have to, if I was just listening to this cold, I would sort of know that I had heard the term Hawthorne Effect, 
but I might not remember what it means exactly. So I just wanted to like read the definition for people. So they're like, okay. And Hawthorne effect is the alteration of behavior by the subjects of a study due to their awareness of being observed. So very relevant name for a company focused on clinical trials. You know, when I hear about her past and what she's gone after. So when we talk about these trials, She's going to walk us through how 1,000 patients in the U.S. in a single trial have changed the lives of millions of patients around the world. But really, the devil's in the details, and that's the essence of what really took her and made Hawthorne what it is today, uh, where it's come from and where it's going. All right. So let's get to it. Here's our conversation with Jody Aiken. Hello, Jody Aiken. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So I want to start off with the name of your company because I have to tell you that when I heard the Hawthorne effect, I was like, wait a second, is that not in my psychology textbook somewhere? So of course I Googled it and the Hawthorne effect is a psychological phenomenon. So is that where the name of your company came from? Is it directly related? It is directly related. Uh, It started as a sort of a nicknaming it off the street I was born on, which was Hawthorne Lane. Really? And uh, then when the Hawthorne word kind of uh, crossed my brain, I realized, oh, wow, Hawthorne effect. It's it's such an important uh, psychological phenomenon, uh, which describes when people are observed or human behavior is observed, it naturally improves, which is what happens in clinical research. Uh, even in a control group, we can expect a patient's outcomes to be somewhat improved simply for being observed in a trial. So can you just maybe put into context for our audience, for our listeners who are most, mostly patients, What is a clinical trial or how has it evolved and why is it still important today? Well, it's my passion of the past 30 or so, something I love to talk about. Great. The really big, big picture is clinical trials are the bedrock of medicine. So the practice of medicine today is based on well-conducted clinical research that gives answers about the safety or effectiveness of a therapy. And we use clinical evidence to drive the guidelines of medical practice. I think the lay public thinks of clinical research in terms of experimental drugs or devices that are being studied to determine whether they can come to the general public to be approved by the FDA. And at the Hawthorne Effect, who are you interacting with? Like, do patients reach out to you and say, hey, I want to be part of a clinical trial, so can you find me one? Or are you interacting with the medical companies or the hospitals that are running the clinical trial? Sure. Well, actually, the answer is all of the stakeholders of the clinical trial process, if you will. So we engage with companies or academia or even the NIH as what we call the sponsors of clinical research. And just to clarify for NIH is who for audiences? Oh, the National Institute of Health. So uh, famously over the past uh, few years with the pandemic, Mm -hmm. we've heard of Operation Warp Speed and the uh, COVID trials uh, were sponsored by our National Institute of Health. So it's a public uh, government funded premier uh, worldwide uh, research institution. Great. And it's funny that you say Operation Warp Speed, because I know that that was also the thing that made people skeptical. They were like, well, this is happening too fast. Why should we trust it? And I'm wondering about like, is that a barrier that happens with trials that people have this mistrust, some of it earned, some of it not? Is that something that you find? 
Oh boy, that's a really loaded question. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, there is a lot of mistrust in, in clinical trials historically and particularly among populations of ethnic diversity or uh, certain parts of the population. Let's say, for example, dating back to World War II in the Nazi camps, uh, Jewish prisoners were abused. They did not know they were subjects of clinical research. Uh, they had no rights. And all of that led to the Nuremberg trials, which led to the Helsinki Code, which led to, in layman's terms, patient-informed consents and the rights for a human subject. So that's one example of an evolution of mistrust that had been righted over time. Other areas, for example, in the Black population, there were the syphilis trials or the HeLa gene with Henrietta Lacks. Henry, and yeah. so in, in that community, um, there's a mistrust, again, where a patient did not know that they were being used in the conduct of clinical research. So then how do we today help people realize that this has changed? Or how do you help people realize that? I don't think there's much happening or has happened to dispel that, I think what does happen is that patients come to clinical research, typically if they have a life-threatening or a life-impairing you know, disease, and uh, when they've run out of options and they're not getting better or their life is in danger, then they may say, well, I wonder if there's a clinical trial. In that process, then yes, the patients are educated about their rights. They sign a 5, 10, 20 patient page form, but that form is designed to inform the patient of their rights, that they can discontinue the trial at any time, that no harm will come to them if they decide to opt out and so on and so forth. So once a patient's in the eco tri uh, clinical trial ecosystem, then they do understand that there's a lot of protections for them. I think that's really an interesting mix to, to think about the, the clinical tri trial activity and, you know, patients sort of advocating for themselves and so forth. There's been an ev evolution of the patient empowerment themselves, whether it's through their families as advocates uh, or through the internet and the availability of information. The other interesting thing is that physicians themselves are not knowledgeable about clinical research. So then how would an average patient find out about a clinical trial? Patients don't live where clinical trials happen. Yeah. We go to the ivory towers to conduct research because the physicians there are world leaders and key opinion leaders and subject matter experts and excellent physicians. But the catchment areas of those institutions are don't work out where if I'm diagnosed with cancer and I live in Bakersfield or I have a cardiac disease and I live in a small town in central Colorado, then my ability to participate in trial is compromised and my local physicians are really not aware of them. And I would imagine that has all kinds of ripple effects then yeah. into socioeconomic, rural versus cities, and then skews whatever research you're trying to find because then the research really isn't for everyone. Clinical research is often an extension or option for care as well. And so if clinical trials don't happen where patients live, then they don't have the same chances for therapy that someone maybe in a more you know urban environment near an academic center would be. The other side of it, though, it's a bit of a catch-22, is that at the end of your clinical trial, your sample of patients is not representative of the general population. So it may be lacking people who live in rural areas or in different economic or social situations. Importantly, the ethnicities might be 95% white 
and not representative of African American or Asian or Native American. And those indifferences are important because from a genetic point of view, we may respond to therapies differently. You know, so then the products get, or the drugs or devices get approved and they get introduced, but they are not generalizable. So Jody, can you give some context though of maybe one of the early clinical trials that you were involved with to sort of walk them through what trials uh, before Hawthorne, you know, what really made you want to change that? That's a really easy question for me to answer because I've I've been um, involved in clinical research for over 30 years now, starting at the bedside. I was an ICU nurse way back when uh, in the university setting where I was first introduced to clinical trials you know, sort of uh, helping uh, to conduct the studies and then moved on into helping to design and conduct the clinical trials and then on into industry. And uh, the last role I had as global vice president uh, at of clinical affairs at Edwards Life Sciences, there was a trial that uh, I led and it was global, was for transcatheter heart valve therapy, which is a very, very exciting breakthrough therapy. That trial did inform me about the challenges that patients have to go through to participate in a trial. There's a lot of uh, visits that they have to make to go back and forth to an institution. And it was an old and frail patient population. The original population were people with heart failure or heart valve disease. And by definition, they couldn't walk up flights of stairs or navigate long hallways, or they depended on family members to bring them back and forth to the hospitals. And as a leader of the trial, there was a lot of things that impacted me very deeply. Number one, that therapy was for a life-threatening disease. Just to walk through, I think I know where you're going. So this was a randomized trial. Correct. Clinical trial. You got it. So some patients get the therapy and some people get the standard of care. And then when you talk about who was eligible for a new trial, this one in particular, people are in a dire situation. So you're talking about people with 24-month life expectancy, 12 months, you know, what are you trying to improve? And yeah, this is what we kind of call it the mother of all trials when the endpoint is actually death or mortality. So in this population, 50% of patients who become symptomatic with this particular heart valve disease will die within 12 months. And that is a pretty dramatic statistic. I used the Hawthorne effect to calculate our sample size because I assumed that even the control arm the patients were going to be seen at the hospital more frequently than normal. So that might mean they'd get a little bit extra therapy and a little extra care. So just a little sidebar on on that. Um, But what was really kind of terrifying about that trial, originally it was in maybe 10 and then 20 and then maybe 50 institutions across the country, which meant that patients that lived a thousand miles away or 500 miles away from any institution did not have really a chance to participate. Or if they did, they were not going to be able to make all the requirements. So they can go and get this amazing new Edwards Mm -hmm. treatment, but their responsibility in a trial, their obligation to make the good science, evidence-based medicine, is they have other things they need to do to check in over the following year. So that's where you say you could fly to Mayo and get your treatment, but are you going to come back at one month and three months and six months? Exactly. Now here's, let's get back to the ethics because this is an interesting twist on that. So the patient signed the form and they hope for the best that they're randomized to the treatment arm. If they are randomized to the treatment arm, they get their therapy. 
they're not as motivated to come back for that second, third, and 10th visit. And this works both sides. The patient may say, well, I feel better. I got what I wanted, so I don't want to come back. And then the science suffers and we don't have the information to actually, you know, extend this great therapy to others. That was a selfishly what I was solving for in the beginning is that we have to get the patients back. Um, we need the data because the data is going to inform us about whether or not this is a, a good therapy. The other side happens is if I'm in the control arm and I'm randomized to a control, then why am I going to keep participating? And control means describe what that group is getting. So in that particular study, it meant they didn't get the new valve. They just got what we call medical management. So they really didn't get the new therapy. Control is a standard of care, which meant in that case, medicines and just limiting the lifestyle. And it wasn't like a, a drug trial. They may give you a fake pill, but since this is a big trip to the hospital, those patients actually know whether they got the new That's valve. That's correct. In that study, that the patients did not get a procedure, so they know they didn't get the valve, yes. That's why this trial was yeah. so compelling to me. Uh, it's an amazing therapy today. It's saving millions and millions of lives across the world. And it was really important to me to get it right, to make sure that all 1,000 patients enrolled had all of their data points measured in a high-quality way so that the FDA, who has to make the decision based on a panel of experts about whether this study met its goals and that the device should be approved and made available to everyone. And so that was a big responsibility to make sure we got that right. And so what I worried about was you know, the ability for patients not only to enroll in the trial, but to meet their obligations in the trial. And that, that inspired me to kind of change the landscape completely and say, well, what if we bring the trial to the patient? They can go to the hospital to get their treatment or their surgery, but what if all of the rest of those obligations happen in the patient's own environment? That would be a game changer. And it really was inspired by that trial. So millions of patients are now getting this therapy it's shown to increase the quality of life, the longevity. It's just a wonderful uh, treatment. It sounds like a great deal of your insight that you applied was the risks of patients not following up, as we say. What are the statistics on how many trials fail due to follow-up? So that's, again, a big point of inspiration. So I will say that with that particular trial, we had excellent follow-up. It's a commitment that the company made to fund that trial as a big public company. One trial cost $100 million. So it was an amazing investment. So what is the typical dropout rate? In a typical trial of this type, you can have as high as 15% of patients withdraw from the trial. That's not even not showing up for the visits. And I really want to break that down. So I, I painted the story that I'm a patient who lives a thousand miles away. I got my valve and I feel better. I'm not really motivated to take that trip back and forth. So I want to drop out. So what I do is I withdraw from the trial. Now that withdrawal is devastating for the study, but it's that patient's right. And when they signed their informed consent, they were told you have the right to withdraw. So that's the dilemma. We have to definitely honor and respect that patient, but that missing data is, is a big cost. Yeah, I would imagine it's tough because you have to honor it, but it still must be disappointing when someone drops out. And that's just the dropout rate. Then there's the compliance, which is 
I may or may not make my visit or I may or may not get all my assessments. And that's another layer of what I call missingness in the trial. So there's two kind of major factors there. And my goal was to make clinical trials accessible to everyone everywhere, but also as a data geek, greedily ensure that we actually get all the data in a timely fashion and have the patient have a joyful and enjoyable experience, but have a very quick delivery of that data back into the trial leaders. It sounds like using all of your insights and experience, you were really coming at the idea for the Hawthorne effect from all angles. So I would really love to dig into how you took that vision and then actually made it happen because I'm assuming that it wasn't necessarily easy. So (laughs) I would love to hear that journey after we take a break. Sounds good. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So we started to get into your vision for creating this company, and it is a big vision informed by your immense experience in the field. So I would just like to know how you took all of the ideas that you had and where the science was not meeting the needs of the patients and how you turned all of that information into your company. So I, I, I tell the story about um, when we had a, the first few patients enrolled in this heart valve trial, I noticed that there was a lag of the doctors, the investigators getting us the data of you know what was happening at the month later type of thing. So I flew to our top medical center and asked them what was happening. And they started to describe to me the actual patient profile of being 85 years old and quite frail. And uh, as a sidebar, we have these beautiful, amazing institutions. If you've been to Stanford or the Cleveland Clinic or Columbia, they're just these amazing uh, buildings mm-hmm. and that go on and on. But if you're a patient uh, walking from a parking lot to those institutions, it's just absolutely awful. Or just parking at the <laughs> exactly. is uh, frightening, <laughs> you know, at Brigham's in Boston, downtown And, Boston. you know, every time I go to any of these institutions, which excites me a lot, I'm always, again, channeling the patient. I see them with their masks if they're immunocompromised or they're frail. And even with the best efforts, concierge at the front of the hospital, it's still quite daunting. And so I met with this team and they started to describe these patients, not with PHI or patient information, but they said, oh, Mrs. So-and-so is so frail, but it takes me eight hours to get her through the hospital and, and on and on. And I remember being frozen in fear, like, oh my goodness, how are we ever going to get through this trial? So I would go home and I would fantasize how can we make it easier for the patient? So I started to imagining getting a bus and ripping out the seats and then putting all the tests on the bus and a nurse or a doctor or both, and just driving up to little old person's house, doing all the tests and then greedily driving away with all our images and our <laughs> blood work and everything. And little old lady goes back into their house and everyone's good. 
well, you know, I started to mock it up, you know, being bored in a meeting one day. And it was would have been an untenable business plan from an economics point of view. How many buses? How many people? How many full-time employees? So I kind of scrapped the idea. But I always had this smile on my face about going straight to the patient's home. To put the context of our technological evolution, this was about a year before the iPhone came out. And it was four years before Uber started. So the iPhone comes out and I remember gracefully transitioning from my BlackBerry to my iPhone and realizing the future of apps and digital health and things like that. Uh, But still the idea didn't have legs on it until I got in my first Uber ride in 2010 and said, well, what just went on there? I just used an app and this thing came to me and so on and so forth. So as we all do, I Googled what the heck was that? And what I found was basically a PhD dissertation on the concept of a two-sided marketplace, the idea of a gig economy um, and all of that. And I'm like, voila, that's it. It's like you had to wait for the technology to catch up to your vision. So what happened next? I took some time off in 2014 and uh, did a deep dive in uh, modeling a concept of intersecting a tech stack using digital tools to map out what was required in the trial and intersect that with a gig economy. But instead of drivers, they would be what we now call heroes, um, which are medical professionals. And the idea is that When a patient enrolls in a trial, it populates their visit schedule, and we send the professional to the patient using digital tools and contemporary mechanisms, collect everything, and just like the fantasy of the bus, get the data back to where it needs to be, you know, within hours of the visit. And that's what we put together. So Judy, from a patient experience, this is new, right? To have these people coming into their home. Yes. And yes, it is, it's absolutely convenient to not have to go hike and, you know, trek through this, these massive institutions. But how have patients responded? Well, in general, the patient satisfaction is pretty much off the charts. Maybe reasons that a patient feels maybe shy about their home environment. But I will say that we visited patients even in Salvation Army. We visited patients in uh, trailers uh, and things like that. So I'd say by and large, definitely a very, very high level of acceptance. And a lot of that is designed into the experience We want to make sure that we created a a really engaging experience for the patients starts from the minute that they're engaged with Hawthorne Effect. Yeah, for me, it seems like you've removed a big barrier for patients. The patients do love it. And the other side of it is the heroes, the medical professionals really also love meeting patients kind of on their home turf. When you think how you love your doctors and your nurses, you get them, you know, uninterrupted and without the, the sort of sterile nature of a clinic. So I I have a question about the heroes. Are they across the country? Because we're talking about that geographically, you're taking this to people everywhere. So are they based in California or are they, you hire people throughout across the country and they're all over the country. Yeah. They're, uh, we have more than 3000 heroes. We're actually now extending into Europe and uh, other continents. Wow. One of the things I really love about our uh, network and our community is that they are a broad spectrum of scopes of practice. So we have physicians and nurses, nurse practitioners and sonographers, and they are on a gig economy. So they're sometimes full-time, you know, in hospitals. Some are chiefs of departments and quite famous. There's something really resonating between both hero and, and patient. The more visits they do, the more they want to do. 
It's like the house call is back. It really is. Yeah. I keep thinking of like Doc on Little House on the Prairie. And how, like as a little girl, I was always like, why doesn't my doctor come to my house? You know, but it's pretty awesome. Yeah. There's two things I say about that. One is um, when I had my first child and there were no such thing as house visits, uh, our pediatrician from uh, Children's Hospital in Oakland was a very famous pediatrician, Ian Johnston. And he was still known to do house calls. And I think he must have been in his 90s and he did look like Norman Rockwell's doctor. <laughs> but he, he had a philosophy that the first mommy baby visit should not have to make them go back to the hospital. And I, I think in the back of my mind, that that's always stuck with me. Yeah. I'm still licensed to practice. So once in a while, I'll go out and do a visit, especially the first ones to just kind of choreograph the experience. And I'm telling you, there's something about when you drive into this little town in Eureka and you're like, wow, look at all these rose bushes. This is where this patient lives. Or there's the context of a patient in their own town, in their own homes. It's it's pretty special. Yeah. Well, it makes them human. Like you really get to experience exactly. them on a human level, which took you back to that walking into a huge hospital and that human experience as opposed to like the science side of it and knowing what you need, but going always going back to that patient experience or their human environment. In science, we measure things that people might not care about, like what's your left ventricular outflow volume or something like that. Um, but what a patient cares about is... Mm, left ventricular. Yeah. <laughs> I know that got you excited, John. John's interested now. <laughs> Woke him up. But, uh, but, you know, there's this concept that I think is uh, really important called social determinants of health. And social determinants of health are not typically captured in sort of an FDA heart valve trial. Um, but those are the things that matter. Is the patient safe? Are they secure? Are they lonely? And that kind of a thing. And uh, what, with us going out to these homes, you get to see that. You get to see what is their environment. Uh, and I think we're going to be able to contribute more dimension to a patient's response to therapy by being able to see these things. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's sort of drill down a little bit more on the patient experience. How do patients sort of find out about this or does that come through their physicians? Because of our platform, we've now opened up the world of what kinds of trials can be done. So there's more direct-to-patient trials. One trial we're very, very excited about that's happening right now is through the American Heart Association and College of Cardiology leaders conducted by Cardiovascular Research Foundation, where we're doing a direct-to-consumer 5,000 patient trial where we're going out to homes all across the United States doing heart assessments with echocardiograms and EKGs and blood draws and some uh, physical and other assessments to see what is the prevalence of heart disease just out there. 
So this is a breakthrough study because the participants are learning through their CVS flyers or emails, and then they click onto an information page, which is hosted by Hawthorne, and then we carry them through the journey. We screen them, and then we consent and enroll them all through digital means and telepresence, and then we schedule the visits, and we're going out across the country. So this study started, the pilot started in late April, and we've almost enrolled the full 500 pilot study, and what's really exciting about it. I would imagine just because like when I go to my doctor, he, uh, my blood pressure will be high and he'll say, just sit here. It's usually like when you come to the doctor, it's yes. high. And then I'm there for a little while and I calm down and like it is lower. So I'm wondering like, oh, you're coming to their home. So immediately you might get a more, a clearer read. hundred percent. I want to, fo- I have a photo of a hero visit. The patient is in his Raiders pajamas. His, <laughs> uh, his Labrador is at his feet with his fuzzy slippers and he's getting an hour long echo. And I'm like, <laughs> That patient is really calm. And so I think we're going to get a really good echo (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. without a high blood pressure. So yeah, (laughs) there's that. And is the dropout rate better than I'm assuming? Oh my gosh! Original goal. Yes, we and thank you for asking that. <laughs> We're supporting a, a very important large scale trial, similar to my predecessor trial, the partner trial. Different heart valve, different company. The study started six months before COVID, and so the first six months visits were coming due. The trial enrolled early, ahead of schedule, which was unprecedented for that type of trial during COVID. And then on top of that, because the sites and patients were using us, we didn't miss visits, which many visits were missed throughout the pandemic and other clinical trials. But most magically is the predecessor trial had about a 15% withdrawal rate and with Hawthorne effect, it was 1%. So that is a dramatic shift. Yeah. So I would imagine then that has even larger implications. And so there's two really big benefits here. One is if we can accelerate the timeline of the trial. On the front end, you're accelerating the enrollment because the catchment areas are so much bigger, more patients can participate. That helps to speed up the enrollment of the trial itself. On the back end, the quality and the completeness of the data avoids some of this, you know, protracted timelines of cleaning data and trying to get all that fixed. And importantly for patients, we're getting therapies sooner. Yes. You know, we all care about all sides of that. The TAVR valve was so dramatic for all of us because we knew we were saving lives. And I think that's why there was such the aha moment that innovations save lives and we need to get them to people faster. You started by making the business of the trial efficient, getting products to patients Mm -hmm. sooner, which is really what our podcast is about, is introducing patients to the people that are trying to get them from when they hear about them to when they can get it for their friends and family. So thank you. That's why we were so excited to have you on. It sounds like your relationship with with CVS has also addressed recruiting Mm -hmm. patients. A hundred percent, yeah. I mentioned heroes as our medical professionals, but actually participants in clinical trials are the true heroes of that bedrock of medicine and bringing it forward because not only are participating, possibly benefiting themselves, but that enriched data is help, can help billions of lives, right? One of the things that I can imagine someone listening to this might be wondering about is sort of the privacy of their data. Can you talk about your approach in protecting the privacy? Patient privacy 
is pretty much job one, even before confidence in a wonderful experience. When I thought, you know, did a risk analysis in the beginning of the company, so what would be the single biggest risk to what we're doing? And that would be a breach of that privacy. So to be clear, most digital solutions or technology solutions or anything we do with FDA or the health system, we're all beholden to uh, the protection of, of information. So there's a lot of technological solutions that are used to, to address that. When we do studies for, let's say, you know, a major drug or device company, and for all the people out there to know that, the companies will, will vet or evaluate companies like Hawthorne Effect or our solutions to make sure that we are high quality, that we do all the proper things to prevent any type of breach of personal data. So I hope that's an assurance to the general population. We don't start studies or hire vendors without a real proper quality assessment of that company. And so it's it's basically a starting point. Let's sort of look forward and where Hawthorne Effect is going next. You mentioned doing work outside the U.S. Can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe anything else in terms of where will Hawthorne Effect be in five years, for example? What's what's the vision for where you're going? Uh, well, the first is that you mentioned the word on democratize, that I think that if you can create uh, a universe where either through a phone call or telepresence or digital or a patient reported outcome and or a visit in the home, and you can collect very high quality information that informs the health system, let alone FDA and sponsors, then maybe you don't need clinical trials. So it's a kind of a dramatic vision, but I think that we might be able to deconstruct some of the formalities of clinical trials or these point in time, you know, kinds of things. If we knew that in the real world, the evidence that we can collect is non-burdensome for the patient, but high quality and immediately available, I think then we change the whole landscape. So that's my, my massive vision there. I care a lot about, you know, global health. My my career started as an undergraduate. I was a foreign service student uh, at Georgetown University, and my grand vision was to work in World Health Organization and to make healthcare more globally accessible. So sort of the dreams coming full circle there, where, you know, working with African countries that, you know, the next round of a pandemic, we use, you know, local workers to distribute vaccines and or to do local assessments and things like that. We already have an infrastructure sort of evolving there. So I think that's where it goes. I think truly putting uh, the future of healthcare in patients' hands and letting them lead and be more. So I appreciate this opportunity to speak directly to patients and consumers because I think that we should have a direct relationship. And maybe with patients as their own stewards and us enabling um, that journey and that data collection, maybe the whole thing goes the other way around, that the data that the sponsors need are coming from the real world evidence that is in the patient's records that the patients are in control of contributing. So there's lots of potential. Well, this has been so great. I just really appreciate your holistic vision because now I truly have a comprehensive understanding of all of this. And when we started this conversation, I just wasn't sure where this was going to go, but you gave us such a full picture of the clinical trial process. So thank you for that. And thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Jody, what I feel, what I hoped this podcast could inform, I'm uh, I, I'm just blown away. Thank you so much. a huge fan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of work left to do, but thank you. Yeah. That was such an accessible and expansive conversation about clinical trials and the Hawthorne effect with Jody Aiken. Craig, what were your thoughts as you were listening? 
Uh, it's kind of amazing that a huge innovation is house calls, but that's actually a brilliant idea because clinical trials are so incredibly important and so incredibly expensive for any kind of medical innovation. Uh, they could go from you know a few millions of dollars to hundreds of millions of dollars for long-term studies that uh, the sort of high-touch treatment of the patients actually visiting their homes, really making sure that they're treated and that they stay in the program actually makes fiscal and human sense. As simple and retrograde an idea it is, it's a brilliant idea. And it's critically important because without successful clinical trials, no approvals, no medical innovation, people die. So it's a great program. Yeah. And I think that when we talked about like the Hawthorne effect, like this idea that, well, people would improve after being observed. And it is that thing about like tender, loving care, personal connection makes a difference. So it's really fascinating. You know, when I think about my parents' age and um, taking my parents through the hospital just that experience about how strenuous that is. You know, you would much rather go, I don't know if an IRS audit is, you know, above a clinical visit when you're concerned and frail, but that conceptually, that, that humanity that's brought to it and the fortunate aspect that it both treats the humanity of the patient, the science rigor and the economics, that's a rare triumvirate. So that's it's just really great to see and how they pulled it off. Yeah, it's an interesting thought that to get good data, you need humanity. Yeah. <laughs> what a concept. Uh, exactly. <laughs> great. So, okay. So here, here's, I'm, I'm in another direction because I just got so excited by the innovation in what she's doing. In addition to the innovation in the form of uh, a visit at your house, I'm actually thinking about how things like telehealth are helping clinical trials and some of these follow-up visits. But also when you think about all this data that she was talking about, I mean, I loved that example of this 5,000 person CVS sponsored trial, just to, you know, what's the state of heart disease in, in people over 65 and being able to identify those patients in smart ways through what they're maybe being prescribed at the pharmacy or, or wh however they're being identified. You take that a step further and you think about applying I don't know, technologies like artificial intelligence into some of this. I just get excited because, you know, we have all these episodes, these wonderful episodes of these great medical innovations. But, you know, the majority of those innovations, if not all of them, they needed a clinical trial, right? So to have innovation happening at that level, and Jody said it so well, even if it gets, it's getting to patients a month sooner, if not more because she's able to make those trials better quality and more efficient, that has huge impact. I, you know, I'm just totally inspired in, by what she's doing and the impacts. And, and it's really cool because I worked with Jody at Stanford back in 1995. So it's super, I'm just so proud and, and really excited by what she's doing. The, the other thing that fascinates me is just like, how much we learn, how much there still is yet to learn and um, so much to study. And I guess that's good for us because then we have lots of topics for all of the shows to come. So that's all we have time for today. So just say goodbye, everybody. Sandra Miller. Bye-bye. John McMahon. See you all. And Craig Allman. Uh, goodbye. 
And we just want to remind all of our listeners that our Lab Before Slab mini episodes are available where Sandy, John, and Craig geek out about other fascinating happenings in the medtech world. And as always, our hope is that some of the innovation and information that we talk about on this show, like accelerated clinical trials, will reach the patients who need them before we die. Thanks for listening. Before We Die is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Before We Die is mixed by Kyle Moore. Our Before We Die panel of experts and creators of the show are Sandra Miller, John McMahon, and Craig Allman. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855 855- 283-4666. Share your healthcare stories with us and we might just play them on the air in a future episode. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's offscript no t.com. <laughs>